This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hi guys, it's Chris from Offscript. Welcome along to another edition of the podcast. Coming up then, living on a prior returns, we're looking at a seminal record, which I openly admit I never knew much about. It's called Tapestry. It's by Carol King. Producer Rog is in for the full story on that. Robbie's got the details of the Stockton Batman bonkers, so it is. And we're in conversation with the F1 CEO Stefano Domenicali. Could a Formula One race happen right here in Dubai? He gives us the answer. All of that and more to come. The Off Script Podcast. Living on a prior. Paying homage to the greatest albums of all time. That's right. Ivan Lubicic lookalike Roger Pryor is with us. Rog, good evening. Good evening. Good evening, all. How still, are you? Still Jason Statham to you, isn't it, Rob? Oh, of course it is. You want to let that drop, will you? Mr. Worldwide, Sono, for you? Yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> Let's round Bull. it out. I think if you have Jason Statham, Pete Bull and Ivan Lubicic, merge mm. them together, you've got producer Rog. Something there. But you're not in to talk about who you look like, Rog. We're <laughs> no. in to talk about... <laughs> Your shtick. Just ground we cover every single week. Exactly. Yeah. It's got to be. <laughs> seminal album from who? Yes. <laughs> Always has to mention who producer Rog <laughs> We always waste three minutes of living on a prior talking about producer Roger's uncanny resemblance to Roger Federer's swing coach. (laughs) It's not a swing coach, it's his actual coach. He doesn't doesn't need a coach to learn how to swing, he's been doing it for 20 odd years. But Rog, talk to me, all things who this week? All things Carol King. Um, and the album we're talking about is Tapestry. It was released in 1971, in the February of 1971. So it's nearly 51 years old, but turned 50 this year, like so many great albums, which we've mentioned on the show. Carol King's second album. Now, you guys are not familiar with it, nope. are you? Not at Absolutely all. not. It's been called, on numerous occasions, many things, including one of the most important albums of all time. It's 25th on the Rolling Stones' 500 Greatest Albums. It moved up 11 spots from its 2003 position when they kind of redid it in 2020. So it is brilliant. And you'll be amazed how many songs you recognise off this album, I guarantee it. I want to start off with doing a little bit on Carole King's timeline because her story is fascinating. Uh, So leading up to this album... She um, had a, uh, I'm going to say, 17-year career. She got into the music industry in 1957 as a 15-year-old. She's a reluctant star. She suffered from crippling stage fright up until just after this album, but she had a work ethic that thrust her into the limelight. She was the first woman to win the Gershwin Prize very recently, and her story has now been made into a hit musical, Beautiful, which is named after one of her songs. She was obviously involved with that Broadway musical. So in 1957, as 15-year-old, she walked into music labels in New York and just said, I want to audition. I want to write songs. I don't want to be famous. But she was I'm, 15. She was 15. Wow. And um, they all wanted to sign her. She eventually signed with ABS Paramount. 1957 is critical because it's Elvis era, right? It's the genesis of rock and roll and the pop star, you know? So... Record labels across the country. You know, I'm talking Motown. I'm talking the Brill Building. I'm talking not so much Hollywood, but it was it was getting there. We're like, we want songs because we've got people that we want to just throw out there and get famous and make money off them and all this sort of stuff. And she was writing brilliant songs. She wasn't interested in the fame, so she was quite happy at that stage. She'd just sit in the background and write songs. Here she is talking about how fame was never on the cards for her. I was confident about what I could do. I liked the idea of writing songs so that I would be recognized and respected by the people who sang them. 
And it, that's really what drove it. I can do that, and I did. Fair play to her. She just wanted the respect of her peers, you know, notoriety in the industry. That's all she really wanted. Her mum was a piano teacher and her dad was a fireman, you know, quite humble beginnings. So that's when she was 15 years old. By the time she's 20, she's married with two. She's married to Jerry Goffin in New York City, who was her um, life partner and work partner. They wrote hundreds of songs, no over-exaggeration, for an all-star list of pop stars and bands at the time, including Aretha Franklin, The Beatles. Here's a montage of some of the songs you will definitely have heard of, written by Carole King. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Come on, baby, do the Take good care of my baby. Up on the roof, to say I do know Carol yeah. King. One or two of those by Carol <laughs> King you definitely recognise. Uh, Carol King and her husband Jerry Goffin. Jerry with a G, so it was double G. Um, so that's the, the Brill Building sound. The Brill Building was like the Motown of New York. Um, Steve Van Zandt, who you interviewed, is a massive fan of the Brill Building. Um, all those bands just needed songs and Carol King was snapped up to write that early 60s bubblegum pop which kids yeah. at the time were lapping up. They'd never heard anything before. They just loved it. There um, was a real joy to that music as well. Yes, yeah, absolutely. You can hear it in there. It's just beautiful. Great stuff. John Lennon was quoted as saying that when he and Paul McCartney started writing songs together for the Beatles, they wanted to become the King Goffin collaboration of England. Really? That's the influence. And famously, James Taylor, who you'll no doubt have heard of, who we'll keep coming back to in this story, he, when he met her, he was too nervous to speak to her. She was so notorious for being just an amazing artist and brilliant. Um, so after more than a decade in the industry, she decides to become a solo artist, encouraged by James Taylor, it has to be said, and working with the session musicians that she'd um, built a bit of a rapport and a working relationship with and it was just at the right time when music was moving away from that poppy sound that we've just heard into the more what was called the canyon the valley scene of LA where you had bands like Crosby Stills and Nash James Taylor Johnny Mitchell she just came in at the right time she divorced her husband and started turning her poems into the songs that she could play on the piano songs that she'd already written she sort of re-recorded them so Tapestry is really a culmination of work up to then she'd obviously left her um, collaborator her ex-husband and she was now with new co-writers but she revisited some of the songs that she'd sent to other people over the years so here's a montage of Tapestry be about 40 seconds and you'll be amazed how many songs you actually recognise for to know all those songs. All five songs, yeah. Yeah, yeah. five songs in there, you recognise them all. Uh, we'll take a little look at them because, you know, I could go through who recorded them first and all that sort of stuff, so uh, let's have a look. Um, 
The thing that stands out, though, is her, her lyrics. At, up until then, she'd been known as a melody maker. She's really well known for being a pianist who could just take lyrics from whoever she's writing with and bring those to life. On this album, these are the songs that she'd written lyrically as well. Uh, and it's safe to say that the lyrics when you listen to the songs, they strike a chord because of their simplicity. We've talked about how she likes to live simply anyway and how she wasn't being fond of the limelight. She uses really simple phrases and she puts them in these beautiful melodies. You know, even her titles are simple. Will you love me tomorrow? You've got a friend. They're not, they're not going on big ideas, but they're, they're sort of like putting big emotions and stuff that we all go through together. Mm. She's putting them onto mm. record, which is a difficult thing to do because you second-guess yourself when you're a songwriter. I assume um, if it's if it sounds too simple, it, you you try and overcomplicate things. Yeah. She wasn't really like um, hamstrung by that. Um, she's influenced so many people over the years. Even recently, I, I saw there was an audience with Adele. Yes, and Adele has cited her lyrically as an influence on what Adele writes. And if you think about Adele's songs, they're quite simple ideas, but just executed beautifully. That's it. So you know, we'll stick with that. Um, so. Carol King had obviously recruited a band um, and they went over to uh, A&M Studios in Hollywood. Picture the scene of this recording, right? The, uh, in Studio A, you had the Carpenters. Studio um, C, you had Joni Mitchell. And then in Studio B, you had um, Carol King recording this album. So just what a time to be there in a recording studio. The band that she'd recruited, they were all from New York. They were, they were all a bit like wise guys and all that sort of stuff. They would apparently sneak into Joni Mitchell's studio up the corridor because it had better instruments in there, particularly the piano. Uh, and Mitchell would come in and sing with them when uh, Johnny Mitchell was out. And that's where they, they struck up a real um, bond with people like James Taylor and Johnny Mitchell because it was that, that, just that enthusiasm that they were, all, they were all really wanted to be part of. You know, So they, it'd just be a great time to be around that. James Taylor seemed to be around this recording all the time and Carol King asked him to be on it to be a duet on this on this song and the execution of it is beautiful it's a song you'll know will you still love me tomorrow very famous from the 60s this version of it is just like wow with James Taylor's guitar Carol King's piano and then just the beautiful voices of the two of them hear Joni Mitchell as well in the background there. She said that that's her favourite song of all time. If Joni Mitchell says it, then you sort of listen to it. Uh, Beautiful duet, and um, obviously the original was by the Shirelles, which was just a completely different take on that song. Both very good. Production-wise, did you hear when we played that, like, how it's got, like, an empty quality to it? It's not massive production, like Motown or the pop from the 60s. That was a conscious decision. So you read about this a lot on Tapestry, that they, they used the room as an instrument, which sounds like a bit of a you know, arty phrase. Yeah. But listening to it yesterday, I totally hear what, what they meant by that. So Lou Adler was the producer. He'd worked with um, Johnny Mitchell quite a lot and he'd worked obviously with Carol King quite a bit. He wanted to make it sound like the demos he'd heard of... Um, Carol King, when she'd sent records out to these artists, you know, Aretha Franklin, here's a song, it's called You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman, you go and record that. So kind of understated. Exactly, understated is the way, and I think they nailed it. Here's Adler, which was the studio engineer, and Hank Chicalo was the studio engineer, and Lou Adler talking about that process. We were making a good record, 
And that's all we knew that. And it was a simple record. Records like Tapestry could be overproduced in a minute. You know, so, oh, let's add more guitars. Let's add more this, more that. Lou and Carol wanted that simplicity. They wanted it to be just nice and warm and a very comfortable record for people to enjoy. I wanted to stay that simple and always have that feeling that Carol was singing to you. We turned all the lights down in the room. All the lights that we were seeing, we were seeing, and all of the background lights down and all that stuff. And after a while, they got so comfortable with that that they were like, they were playing in their living room. Will You Love Me Tomorrow, uh, Joni and James sang background on. James was on a lot of tapestry. If he wasn't singing, he was playing. They were all friends. To Joni and uh, James, they all were friendly. And it, and it was fun, you know. They would come in, and, and Carol knew what she wanted. It took us three weeks to make tapestry, $22,000. Which was cheap even in those days. Uh, three weeks. Brilliant. When it clicks, it clicks. When the right people are in the right room together, yeah, it just it. sounds brilliant. Um, Carol King was the queen of melody, but as I said, her lyrics were coming to the fore in this album. And um, she wrote the song, I Feel the Earth Move, on her birthday when there was an earthquake happening, uh, the very famous uh, catastrophic San Fernando earthquake, which happened on February the 9th, 1971. And I just love the way, you know, she's talking about, I feel the earth move. That's actually happening. It's like literal inspiration for the song. It's got a really great bluesy intro as well. I think it's track one on the album. I think it's the best song on the album, to be honest. Yeah, let's play it now. Right, there is your intro. Enjoy it. Carol King, I feel the earth move. Dubai I 103.8. Stay tuned. So it's an album full of songs that you would recognise. Um, You've Got a Friend was obviously a James Taylor single that Carole King had written for him. Uh, he had a number one with it, and then it turned up on this album. Her version is slightly different, but just still so good. Um, there's another couple of examples on that. The most prominent is You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman, or Feel Like a Natural Woman, as it's called on this album. So you'll know that instantly as an Aretha Franklin song. You'll have heard it a million times. It'll be embedded in your mind. Um, but uh, just as a reminder, this is how it sounds like when Aretha Franklin sings it. Do 
just stunning. But here's how it sounded when it was re-recorded a few years later for the album Tapestry by the lady that wrote it, Miss Carol King. Almost a sadness. Yeah, I prefer it though. Do yeah, you? Yeah, you can yeah. hear the emotion in yeah. it. Like it gives the words meaning when she sings it. Like Absolutely. you can tell she's feeling it as opposed to just singing lyrics off a page. The voice is breaking a little bit. She's. Mm. I mean, you can't compare her vocal talent. In common with Carol King. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> but you're right. It's sung by the lady that wrote it. You can then see the emotion she was writing when she, yeah. the emotion she was going through when she wrote it. So I think it's a fascinating comparison. So many other great songs on this album. Please do dig it out and have a listen to it. Home Again's great. It's Too Late is beautiful, too many to mention. I'll quickly talk about the legacy of this album and the legacy of Carol King. It's undeniable. She is painfully humble. Somebody texted in earlier and said, uh, Carol King was famous but not notorious, and that's a perfect way to say it. So mm-hmm. thank you for that text on Fordable Zero One. She was the first woman to win the Gershwin Award, which is a um, popular culture award invented by the Library of Congress uh, in the early 2000s for outstanding contribution to popular music. She was the first lady to win it. She joined Burt Bacharach, Paul McCartney, Paul Simon, Stevie Wonder, and President Obama presented her the award. This is a bit of Obama's speech about Carole King. As Carol tells it, the secret to her success is that I try to get out of the way and let the process be guided by whatever is driving me. So tonight, it is my great pleasure to present America's highest award for popular music to a living legend... Miss Carol King, you couldn't hear. He, he did say Miss Carol King. I didn't just it's steal it from somebody else. That wasn't yeah. Paul McCartney's speech. That was no. Carol King. <laughs> um, but, uh, I mean, but, uh, he could read the shopping receipt and make it sound so good, though, good, couldn't he? Right? Uh, yeah, absolutely brilliant. And he kind of sums it up perfectly. Summed up what I've been trying to say about just her quite happy to be in the shadows, humble, didn't really want the limelight. She was famously so frightened to go on stage that she didn't really promote this album uh, in terms of touring it or doing interviews. And yet it still spent 15 weeks at number one and stayed in the chart for over six years at the time. Only only Pink Floyd's album um, Dark Side had spent any longer. Well, it still spent longer. Um, critics loved it at the time, hailing it uh, in, in the village voice as liberation for Carole King. And then Rolling Stones, John Landau, I love this. He said, it's surpassing personal embassy and musical accomplishment, which I think sums it up perfectly. Mm, that was Tapestry by Carole King. It's amazing. Wow. Yeah, I tell you what, Rob, you've been listening to all of the albums that have been featured on Living on a Prior. Tapestry, Carole King? It's going to be getting downloaded. Yeah, there's no Good. Get it on the car on the way home. Sona Rapani is nodding of along course it is. for that. I... Yeah, I will, I will have a listen. <laughs> that is Steve Aoki for Chris McCarthy, as per. It's like father of two on the way. That's exactly yeah, father it's his last hurrah. <laughs> the Offscript Podcast. The Offscript Podcast. We talk all things shamanism. Yes, we're going to be talking about shamanism. I did warn you today before we went on air that this is going to be one of our more unusual feature. Mm-hmm. And now Rob said that's kind of par for the course of what we do. But this, even for us, is is stretching it a little bit. But we're <laughs> going to be talking about alternative states of consciousness and people's individual experiences of that. The reason we're doing that is because we did hear a few weeks ago from John Perkins, and we talked about his best-known book, Confessions of an Economic Hitman. I think, Chris, you really enjoyed that I one. It. I remember you really enjoying that one. Now, that's 
what he's really known for. But he's written a number of other books, really detailing his his time in the Amazon, living with different tribes. And his most recent book that came out last year is called Touching the Jaguar. And he told me about a personal event in his life that inspired this story. In 1968, I was sent by the Peace Corps deep into the Amazon rainforest in, in Ecuador. And I was living in, a, in what's called Schwa territory. The Schwa at the time were hunters and gatherers living what we would call very primitive lives. Uh, and although I actually found them to be extremely amazing people who were very, very well connected with their environment, much better than we are, and, and able to, to live very, very successfully and, and prosperously in their own terms within that environment. But at one point, maybe a few months into my experience deep in the forest, I became extremely sick. I couldn't keep any food down at all. I lost a lot of weight in a very short period of time. And I, there was no way I could reach a medical doctor. It was, it was a, a full day's walk through extremely dense, difficult jungle. And then a two-day ride in a rickety old bus from around 1,000 feet altitude up to about 15,000 feet altitude and then down to 8,000 feet to the nearest city where there was any decent medical facility. There was no way I could do that. I could, I could not stand up on my own. And so I was resigned to dying. And one day, uh, the school teacher who, who spoke Spanish, I spoke some Spanish. I was, everybody else spoke schwa. <laughs> but the school teacher spoke, every, spoke Spanish and schwa. And so the school teacher comes up to me. He's leading this old man by the hand, old schwa man by the hand, who looked very scary. He was covered. He was almost naked except for a loincloth. He was tattooed. And the, the, the school teacher says, this guy is the shaman. And I'm like, well, I don't know what a shaman is. This is. I graduated from business school. This is 1969 now. And he says, well, he can cure you. So a lot of people out there perhaps also don't know what a shaman is. So I think this is a concept that's really become popular in recent years, where a lot of people are having shamanistic experiences or trying to approach that spiritual altered state of consciousness. Are we calling it a bit of a fad? A fad? I feel like people are gravitating towards that right, right. now. Yeah. Some sort of different kind of spiritual experience that they can experience, I suppose. Um, now, let's give you a little bit of background on it. Shamanism is thought to be derived from Tungustic languages. This is around eastern Siberia and Manchuria, where it's believed to have originated. And it means the one who knows. Mm. And essentially, practitioners, the idea is that they alter their consciousness and in their own community, in their tribe, this altering of consciousness is considered an important ritual practice, and they use this practice to help the whole community. It's a controlled practice. So this person is really considered to be an expert in their tribe, somebody who's a key member, a very integral part of the community. And so typically, they would enter a trance state during some sort of ritual. Now, this ritual could be any number of things. They could enter this trance state through dreaming, through drumming, diet, dancing. There are different methods that are used across different types of tribes. And this altered state sometimes as well can be used by the shaman to get an insight into the future to metaphorically experience a change in shape or to contact spiritual entities. There are all sorts of different levels of this. Uh, but let's get quickly back to John's story because he's on his deathbed, as he said. He's pretty skeptical himself, but he's agreed to the shaman's help. He doesn't have much choice here. This is where the name of his book comes from. And that night, this this guy, uh, he, he, he took me on what you'd call a, a, a vision quest or a shamanic journey. 
uh, basically, he, he, he took me into kind of a trance state. And I was very susceptible. I'm very sick. I've lost a tremendous amount of weight. I'm a little delirious. I'm already in a trance state. I'm kind of delirious. But he takes me into this state, and he's playing music on a weird instrument. I get my eyes closed, and I see this amorphous shape in front of me. And he, he, he says to me, and again, this is translated through the school teacher. He says, touch the jaguar. And of course, I I, my, I open my eyes and I look around. I'm in the middle of the jungle. There's a lot. There are jaguars around. And it's nighttime. And I'm terrified. And he says, "No, no, no, no. You know, close your eyes and and see the jaguar vision, and then touch it." And I did. And as I touched this jaguar in this vision, I heard a voice. It was like my mother's voice saying, "The food and drink will kill you." Well, the schwa. Uh, eat some very strange foods, by my, in my opinion. <laughs> you know, squirming white grubs live down the gullet, you know, and, and, and other such things. In the Amazon, people don't drink water from the rivers because they know the rivers are, are, are dangerous. They've got organic matter in them. And they, they make a kind of beer called chicha by the women chewing manioc root and spitting it, and that sets up a fermentation. You can mix that with water, and then you drink it. And you have to drink a lot of it every day because you, you get dehydrated easily in the Amazon. So because it was, the, the, there wasn't any Perrier, there weren't any Cliff Bar, so I'm eating a lot of scrumming white grubs and other things and drinking a lot of spit. Well, as it turns out, I'm... I like these things now. They're grooming white grubs. They're highly nutritious. <laughs> so, um, so I'm hearing this voice when I'm eating these things. It's like my mother saying, it'll kill you. The same time on this vision, I saw how incredibly robust the schwa are. The men are, you know, they're, they're built like Tarzan. They, they've got muscled legs that professional ho- soccer players would 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 love to have they carry you know they kill wild boars deep in the forest and have to carry them out on their shoulders people live to be very old if they're not killed in a hunting accident or die in in, in, in infancy and so i saw that this food and drink wasn't killing me it was the mindset it was my perception that was killing me and it was making them healthy and that changed everything for me if only our listeners could see the expressions on both of your faces. <laughs> Listen, I warned you, it's a bit alternative hey. for us. It's a little bit different, but, Listen. you know, it's somebody's experience nonetheless. And he did say the shaman comes back to him a few days later and says for his quote unquote payment, he'd like John to be his apprentice. This guy had saved his life in his own eyes. So he decided to do it. So he said he studied with a few different shamans. What did he learn along the way? And one of the first things he taught me, he said, touching the jaguar, he said, that's so important. He said, we know that when we confront something that we fear or that's holding us back or making us sick, but like you were sick, if we, if we confront that and run from it, it'll follow us. It'll chase us. But if we touch it, if we look at what are the real causes, then we can change our perception. As I change my perception from the food is killing me, to the food and drink are making me healthy. And that was what shamanism that he taught me was really all about. It's to recognize that our reality is molded by our perceptions. When you come right down to it, there's no United States. There's no Russia. There's no corporations. There's no culture except as we perceive it. And when enough people accept a perception or codify it into law, it impacts reality. 
And that's what this shaman was teaching me. And later I studied with shamans up in the Andes. And since then I've studied with shamans in, 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 in Indonesia and uh, in Egypt and many other places. And all of them have this thing in common of, of our perceptions mold our reality. You can change your reality by changing your perceptions. And of course, modern psychotherapy is all about the same thing. So is marketing. So is politics. Our world is run by our perceptions. And, and that's why this book, Touching the Jaguar, kind of forms a bridge between the books I wrote on, on shamanism and indigenous people back before I wrote Confessions of an Economic Hitman and the four I've since written about global economics and, polit and, 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 and intrigue. The common factor is this idea, if we have a perception that this way to economic success is to maximize short-term profits, regardless of the social and environmental costs, that creates a certain reality that we can call a death economy. If we change that perception to the goal of business is to maximize long-term benefits for people and the environment, then we totally change the reality of what it means to be human on this planet and, 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 our, and our lives will change. I mean, in short, he's saying we are making the world we live yeah. in, right? Yeah. Of course, yeah. Exactly. But that will never happen, will it? You'd have need to have enough people because, as he said there, that perception needs to be shared by large enough of a group of people that needs to be codified. It's a very alternative view, and it's subject to such potential corruption. But don't you see that to some exploitation. extent, to some extent, happening, especially with younger generations really pushing and forcing the drive for sustainability, for mm. environmental awareness. I mean, that is becoming the norm of generations that are behind yeah, us. Yeah, but for every young person that's pushing sustainability and environmental progress you've got a ceo who is pushing the the envelope on maximizing profits and turning big companies into basically country-sized economies yeah but i these, mean these that, sorts that, of changes or these codifications are not going to happen overnight are they but if enough people in generations that are coming up decide to view the world this way, he's mm. suggesting basically that it can change. So it's hopeful. There is a disruption to the status quo. I think we see it. We see it in large swathes of society today. There's no doubt about that. Where are we going next well, with John Perkins, an enlightened John Perkins? You know, that's all we're going to hear from John Perkins. But shamanism itself, it did make me curious about this experience. You do hear so much. You know how long this has been around? This has been practiced for millennia since the early upper Paleolithic Era. Basically, just, you know, tens of thousands of years ago that this has been practiced across all sorts of different cultures around the world. That's the thing is you'll find this practice in the Amazon to the Inuits to once again, Siberia. This is really something that has traversed and is found across the world. And a lot of what I could find was from Western researchers who had gone in, had some sort of an experience and then shared their stories with people in the industrialized world as we come from. And one of those guys is Phil Borges. He's a filmmaker and photographer, and he has been documenting indigenous and tribal cultures for 25 years. Now, he didn't set out with some goal to study shamans. That's not what happened. He was just a photographer trying to get some cool photographs, trying to understand their culture a bit more. And it just so happened he happened to, in each of these different tribes he went to, come across all of them had a shaman. And he started to recognize a, com a couple of similarities between them as he heard their stories. He said, many of these individuals started in their early teens having what we would consider psychotic symptoms, hallucinations, things that 
again, in our world are not considered normal. Mm -hmm. But in those tribes, these were considered a gift. So somebody, an elderly person, perhaps a grandmother, some sort of mentor would come to them and say, this is a gift. And then help guide them through that so that it would become a controlled experience. And what he says, he actually has a documentary called Crazy Wise uh, on how mental illness is perceived differently in different parts of the world, um, as opposed to, let's say, the Western world where you might be pumped full of drugs to fix that issue. Well, here's TED Talk that he did describing the common journey of shamans around the world. First of all, this is the common things with shamanism. It's not always true, but in general. They typically are identified with what they call the call. And the call, in the ones I interviewed, almost all of them, it was a psychological crisis. Secondly, they almost always have a mentor. Somebody that's been through it and come out the other end of this psychological crisis and can show them the ropes and, and, and show them and tell them and comfort them along the way. And then they have to face what they call the initiation. And it's almost always this death, a death of their old self, self and a rebirth of a new self. They take on much more of an elevated consciousness. They expand their consciousness. Their awareness of who they are expands. As such, they learn to go into the spirit world where they believe the spirit world informs our world of reality here. So that's where things really happen. So they go there, get the information, come back to help people. And, um, and then, after they've learned their trade, they begin their life of service. So that's the common journey, according to his eyes. And once again, he's been doing this for 25 years. He's interviewed more than 25 different shamans over the course of that time. And just John Perkins did, said he went traveling with his son, met the shaman just out of curiosity, didn't intend for the shaman to do a ritual, but the shaman insisted. And the shaman got really quiet when he did the ritual. And, uh, you know, he said, well, what's what's going on here? What's happened? He was really chatty before, Phil had said. Um, But then essentially the shaman had said, you're going to have a very difficult journey, but you'll be fine. And lo and behold, a couple of days later, his son gets sick, who he's traveling with. Oh, my Lord. And it just so happens a few days later, even though his son can keep no food down, they end up coming across a medical doctor from Pakistan who happens to – they literally stumble across him in the most unusual place. And he's fully supplied with IV drips and all the equipment that they need. So he said it was a strange – sort of prophetic experience that he had as well. Interesting. John Perkins, mm. from, uh, you know, the confessions of an economic hate man to kind of finding himself spiritually. It's a bit of a, a jump. It's a bit of a leap. It's a bit of a juxtaposition, but it works. People can be multifaceted. Absolutely, they can. I want to get your, in a nutshell, thoughts okay. on when you talk about the potential for people to explore a new way of living mm-hmm. or a different approach to some of the fundamental things that humanity has kind of evolved into being for example capitalism sure or you know modern digital media you know when i when i go on to various different sort of media houses sites etc you know there seems to be an ever-increasing um obsession with the cult of celebrity for example sure this would be something that flies in the face of all the values that are intrinsic to something that would you know be purported by shamans So what I'm basically trying to say is, do you really think there's any possibility that humanity at large will do a giant U-turn? 
I think it does depend. You know, a lot of trends will start with a few individuals who start a movement. So, you know, if enough people start to say social media is a big distraction that's not actually contributing to my overall well-being and happiness, which is something I think a lot of people identify with anyways with that statement, but choose not to do anything about because we take the easy option a lot of times. But if a lot of people step away from that and then all of a sudden it becomes socially acceptable and then you have this kind of snowball effect. Right. Where it becomes the norm. So I do think there are ways in which that happens. I mean, just look at like organic food living, for example, you know, in the 80s and 90s. So many of us grew up on processed foods and it was the accepted norm. Nobody does that anymore. You're right. Yeah. So things can change. Trends can change. Great example, by the way, (laughs) which you just pulled straight out of the hat. I don't know where that came from. That's a very good example. Okay. well, thank you. (laughs) So, yeah, I do think we can change. Yeah. Right, well, all good then. We are all set for change. Shamanism may just be the way forward. It may just some be of the way forward. Something needs to change the way the world is going right now. The Offscript Podcast. Let's get into this story, Robert, because uh, you came across it. Well, I've There's got a, a question crime for you. Fighting vigilante out there. If you, okay, Chris, if you had to choose between being a shaman's apprentice yes, or, or a crime fighting vigilante, <laughs> which would you go for? <sighs> The crime fighting. <laughs> you go for the crime fighting. Basically, a shaman's apprentice would be bottom of your potential list of job opportunities, wouldn't it? Yeah, listen, I take the crime fighting vigilante. I think. Uh, yeah, I can kind of see you really? squeezed into a sort of well. dad bod Batman suit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like Adam West. Nobody has, wants to imagine that. No, you know, you know the Batman played by Adam West. Yeah, I think course. it would be more that that kind of look yeah. than than Christian Bale. Than the structured suit yeah, yeah. that like or, makes yeah, you the have kind of body back. armor, the, yeah. the body armor suit. Um, also, you need to trim the beard because like, you couldn't have Batman with a big, full, bushy beard. Could you? That would look, <laughs> that would look absurd. Just sticking out from underneath the mask. Yeah, yeah, in little clumps. Yeah, you know. Please, Rob, moving forward, do not do not ever ever imagine me in anything tight from now on in, okay? Okay. It's wrong. Well, I, I want to talk to you about the Stockton Batman. Right. Because uh, he's been making headlines. <laughs> Stockton uh, Around three years ago, a man out on the west coast of the US started to make a name for himself as a crime-fighting vigilante. I want you to take a listen to this news report from 2018. That's right. He calls himself Stockton's Batman. He's a father of two and a local businessman, but he tells me he spends much of his time here at this busy Stockton shopping centre. Now bad guys when police can't get to them. Where you get these haircuts from, homie? Uh, you can get them online. And he uses them often. Stockton's Batman won't use his real name or show us his face, but tells us he's nabbed hundreds of alleged criminals here. They're criminals and convicting, uh, and, and, and to which point they're committing crimes in front of my eyes. <laughs> he's not very convincing there. No. Like they're criminals and they're kind of, you know, they're committing crimes. At least that they are to me. This fella is who exactly? We still we don't know. Those... No, we don't know. So it started with him picking up, you know, individuals who are committing petty misdemeanors at the 99 cents only store. <laughs> Right, another question. He wears a full Batman suit. No, I don't. So he's just hanging out there all day by the entry. He wears a full Batman just suit. Just skulking around the aisles. He's, he's basically, no. He looking does, for somebody he does to not, make what, a he move. I don't think he wears a full Batman suit. What he's done is he's gone and bought a pair of handcuffs online, which he uses to apprehend criminals, I might add. And, <laughs> <laughs> and he's now hanging around at sort of supermarkets and various shopping precincts. He's trying to spot people who are up to no good and then he goes over and makes a citizen's arrest it started picking up you know shoplifting petty misdemeanors 
it's escalated in the last couple of years and he's now making headlines because apparently he is now up the stakes and he's in pursuit of an alleged double murder suspect. Cheapers. Yeah. And the police He's a father of two, a local <laughs> businessman who calls himself the stocks of Batman. And if that's not a guess for off script, I don't know what is. I know, oh, right? Yeah. We need this fella on. And are the police encouraging this fella? I don't think so. I don't I think he's acting completely of his he's own rogue. volition and he's gone rogue. Well that's what vigilantes do, isn't it? <laughs> he's not sponsored by the local police department. <laughs> Uh, anyway, um, he was allegedly in the Californian town of Lodi when he recognised a man covered in blood who had wounds and, on his hand and leg. The Batman says he, he saw... The Batman. He saw two... <laughs> don't call them Batman. <laughs> well, I don't know what else to call him because we don't know his name. But uh, he says he saw the two victims who were found near train tracks in an area between Century Park and Salas Park. Anyway, the vigilante detained the double murder suspect and immediately called the local police. Now, the suspect is currently in hospital but the police have not confirmed if he's been detained for those particular crimes that the vigilante, the Stockton Batman, has pinned on him. Um, but interestingly, a reporter for CBS Sacramento said that the Stockton Batman had actually assisted the process of apprehending this individual and that he was being investigated by the police. So the Stockton Batman has played a large role in potentially bringing down... A well, an attempted murder. A murder well, a, it's suspected. not a murder yet. Suspected, yeah, murder suspect. A lot of people in Stockton. A lot of people in Stockton. I don't know whether they've got a torch where they shine the the symbol whenever they need to call upon him, but apparently a lot of people in Stockton are, are appreciative of the work that he's doing behind the scenes oh, in apprehending rogue. these criminals. One witness apparently said he's doing a pretty good service. He's you know getting them where the police aren't. A father of two, businessman by day, Stockton Batman by night. Listen, if you were a community member of Stockton and you were just trying to do your regular old supermarket shopping <laughs> and there's this guy kind of following you <laughs> around, stalking around every single day, In a twirling his handcuffs. Yeah, that's weird. It you would weird. not be having that. But uh, listen, I'd take that over a shaman's apprentice <laughs> any day of the week. The Offscript Podcast. I caught up with Stefano Domenicali. Who is he? I hear some of you ask. Well, he's the CEO of F1, formerly of Team Ferrari. He spent 23 years with Ferrari, the last six of which he was team principal. He's been in Dubai today celebrating all things Italian Sports Day at Expo 2020. When I say I got a smidgen of time with him, I was promised 10, 15. I got about four, and then he was whisked away. So there's still enough time to ask a few of the pertinent questions. Let's get into this now, because I caught up with him on the sidelines, as I say, at Expo 2020. We talked about the prospect of one day a Dubai Grand Prix. We've talked about the modifications that have been made to the marina. It's been well documented. Those modifications do support F1 cars, if indeed that time came to pass. And F1's continued growth in the United States of America First, though, his take on the weekend just passed over in Qatar, the first time Qatar have been on the F1 circuit. And Stefano had this to say. Well, actually, it was really great. If you think that we organised that in less than 14 weeks, I need to thank the, the Qatari promoters for 
all their commitment. Now we are heading to Saudi, you know, a new place, an incredible event, and then to Abu Dhabi. You can understand what we are living in this moment to connect Formula One to the Middle East. It's remarkable. I mean, four races, Stefano. Is that it now? Have we reached a saturation point for races here in the Middle East? I would say so. But we don't have to forget the first to believe in the project where the Bahrain is. Bahrain was the first in 2004 to understand the, the vision of Formula One. And, and, uh, and today we are with four. More than that is not possible. Yeah, I spoke with Bernie Eccleston a, a number of years ago about Dubai and, and the city and the Emirates of Dubai. Obviously, Abu Dhabi is home for Formula One here in the United yes. Arab Emirates. I mean, ever the, the prospect of a street race in Dubai, is, is that just not feasible at this moment in time? Absolutely not. I mean, with the four, four races to add another one would be impossible. In life, never say never, but uh, to be realistic, I would say the presence of already these four races is already magnificent. One other kind of hot topic at the moment, Stefano, is the US market. There is no doubt yes. there was huge crowds, I know, over in Texas. Do you have more plans? What does the future look like for Formula One in the United States of America? Well, I think that the American market is blooming, is growing tremendously. Next year we're going to have Miami, and, and, and there is already all sold out. I do believe that potentially that market could have, uh, can host three races, but let's see. We need to go first to the second one. And if you think where we were to just two years ago, when there seems not a lot of interest today, is the other way around. That shows the potential that for one will have it. That is the voice of Stefano Domenicali there, CEO of F1. So a couple of big lines out of that. Dubai, he says it's impossible. He then kind of backtracks and says, never say never. You've said impossible, Stefano. He feels mm. that four is too much. And of course, Abu Dhabi here in the United Arab Emirates have got the kind of exclusivity on that. So for anyone fans looking forward to a street circuit in Dubai, we might have to wait a while. I think practicality as well. What, Can you imagine shutting down the marina for uh, for five days? They do Singapore. They do Monaco. Yeah, but... But people need... Uh, there's too many people that live there that we need to get around. A lot of people yeah, in Singapore. Tram, that tram would be a bit, <laughs> a bit of an issue, wouldn't it? A lot of people in Singapore. Millions in Singapore. That's shut down for a weekend. Monte Carlo, the same. Not quite millions. What is there, half a million or so in Monte Carlo? I don't know. Listen, they've done wonderful things in the past, but he's saying Dubai... No, not for now. We've got Bahrain, we've got Qatar, we've got Saudi Arabia, and of course we've got Abu Dhabi. The US is interesting, though, because 2022, there is a record 23 races. I had so many more questions for Stefano. He had to scamper, though. 23 races next year. The idea, the notion that, oh, and the US could probably slot in another. Maybe Los Angeles, it's been discussed as well. I mean, how many races is too many? Because right this season, I think this season, what do we have, 22, 23 next year? That seems a lot to me. Mm. Too many. There comes a point where if we talk about saturation in races and areas, it becomes a little bit farcical. If we start going 24, 25, 26, that's too many. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to get to a stage where the drivers can't compete in every single race. Well, that's... <laughs> Because, you know, you talk about tennis players missing tournaments. Golfers. Golfers, is that's a hot topic. But, uh, yeah... I mean, Formula imagine one, that. Imagine building a schedule saying, yeah, we might miss that Grand Prix because it doesn't really suit us. And 
yeah, that's that's the the fear. If you do go too many races on a calendar, I'm intrigued by next year. Of course, this year F1 riding a crest of a wave. Why? Well, because we've got a genuine title tussle. All eyes undoubtedly will be on the Yas Marina circuit, December the 12th. The Etihad Airways Abu Dhabi Grand Prix, Max Verstappen, Lewis Hamilton. Of course, they've got the Saudi Arabian, the maiden Saudi Arabian Grand Prix first. If Hamilton wins that, then we're right there in the thick of it. Winner takes all. And I'd, be I'd love to know, and I don't have this off the top of my head, but I'd love to know when there was last a genuine multi-way title race between Abu Dhabi. I remember Fernando Alonso. So back, was there not five or six drivers that could win it? I'm tempted to say 2013, 2014, down to the final race. It was bonkers. I remember it. I remember covering it for Sport 360 as I was back then. So it must have been 2013. Maybe 2012, actually. I'll double-check that. But yes, in terms of multiple drivers from multiple teams in with a show... I think that's what Formula One needs. It's been great to see Verstappen versus Hamilton, but that's been our only story, really. There's been one or two others, don't get me wrong, but um, and there's been some other great drives, but that's really been the, the, predominate, the predominating narrative. And... Yeah, I think that there needs to be more to it than that. Mm-hmm. Moving forward, that's the next evolution of F1, where you have more competition between the teams. You don't have these two very dominant teams that are miles ahead of everyone else. You find a way to sort of concertina everything. Well, it's Stefano's old team, Ferrari. They've got to surely come back in the not-too-distant future and make it a three-way tussle at the top. But uh, interesting times, of course, for now. The focus very much on this season. Who will emerge? Victorious Max Verstappen or Lewis Hamilton? The Offscript Podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please do go ahead and click subscribe. You can also check out our other podcasts, Time Capsule or The Big Interview. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. 